I am excited, though, to look into this new section in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12 begins a section uh, where, where Paul changes gears again. He's been addressing them with regard to their gathering and giving them instruction and correction with regard to their gathering, uh, how we worship as men and women. He began with that, and then certainly uh, how we come to the Lord's table. We looked at that last week. And now he turns to the topic of spiritual gifts uh, within the gathering. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. We'll go through verse 11 and stop there today. And this is God's word. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same, the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us even now as we come to your, your word, the word of God. We cannot understand these things in our natural man. We need your help, uh, Spirit, to understand spiritual things. So I pray that you would uh, open this up to us. And most of all, we want to know your heart for us as a church. Certainly that's why Paul penned these things for them and it's been recorded and, and protected and preserved in Holy Scripture for us today. So Lord, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question or at least begin by, by engaging a question together. And it, it goes something like this. If you were God, if you were God, what would you do after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended? We just celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I'm not trying to be uh, sacrilegious at all or inappropriate, but I want to try to get us into the heart and mind of God because we know that he had to have a plan. The Son of God ascended to his right hand. He had a plan for his new creation people for his church until Jesus, his son, would return. So what was the plan? Or, or actually, if I put it to you, what would be your plan? What would you do? Your plan to unite people. Because the, the Old Testament people of God were uniquely united, particularly through the law the law was a part of the DNA and the bloodline of the people of God that connected them to God and to each other. And yet the law, we know, was insufficient. Christ came to fulfill the law in his death and resurrection. But then what? How is God going to 
after the ascension of Christ, unites a diverse people in their DNA, in their bloodline, if you will. How is God, how is God going to be God with us in the new covenant church age? How is God going to empower his work and his people and his mission throughout the world? How is God going to manifest himself and his presence in a world where the temple was no more? And the Holy of Holies, the the veil had been torn in two. I wonder what would you do? What would your plan be to magnify the reality and power of God in people and in the earth now that his son was gone? Well, of course, God's answer is the Holy Spirit. The only reason that the disciples could swallow the fact that Jesus was leaving them was because of the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave to them. Now, the Holy Spirit is the the third person of the Trinity. He is eternally God and proceeds from God and from Christ. The Holy Spirit is God with us in the church age. The promised Holy Spirit is God's plan to manifest his power and his presence in the earth today. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Jesus by miraculously regenerating hearts that were once made of stone that now come alive and are made of flesh. That's the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit manifests the presence of Christ to us individually and to us corporately as we gather. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit empowers and equips people with gifts for ministry and edification for the common good. We live in the age of the Spirit, right? We live in the age of the Spirit where the power and presence of God Almighty through the person of the Holy Spirit is alive and at work today. This is God's plan. And so if all of this is true, then let me ask you this. If you were God's enemy, what would your plan be to stop this? Again, these are kind of thought experiments. But what would be your plan if the real presence and power of God was no longer a place that you could physically travel to and see the glory of God in the temple? and was no longer in the person of Jesus Christ on earth because he had ascended to the Father. If the real presence and power of God was available and active in the world, what would you do if you were God's enemy to sabotage this? Well, I think it'd be one of two things, actually. And hang with me with this. This is all important as we head into our text. I think, I think one thing that you would do if you were God's enemy, you would probably try to so minimize the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, to so neutralize the Holy Spirit that Christians never actually expected to interact with him at all. I think that would be one of your strategies. Or never expected that his gifts, for example, still existed today, 
If you could turn people into functional deists, where God exists up there and he does his thing up there and we exist down here and we do our thing down here, but it's kind of that arrangement. I think if you could accomplish that, you would win. Or you could push the pendulum to the complete other side and make everything about the Holy Spirit craziness, right? You can just go the other other direction. People are certainly going to believe and expect the Spirit, but then just help them to completely distort what the Holy Spirit does. Maybe isolate the Spirit and experience of the Spirit as the main or only goal of Christianity. And the crazier, the better. Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. I think that would probably work also to marginalize the true person and work of the Spirit for a majority of Christians in the church who might actually get burned out on that eventually or want nothing to do with that. And I start this way because I've found all of these things to be true. Today as we, we head into our study of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit available to the church today, we're going to find that that the Holy Spirit of God is at work, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is at work, empowering and equipping Christians in incredible ways for the building up of the church, the church that Jesus Christ promised to build and said the gates of hell will not stand against it. And yet I've also seen that the discussions of these chapters The discussion of the gifts of the Spirit immediately began to push people to extremes. Maybe you've experienced this as well. There are those who who don't believe some of the gifts continue today. And there are those who have become so unhealthily fixated on the Holy Spirit and fixated on the gifts as they define them or want to practice them or manifest them. And then mix all of this with human foolishness and people begin to consider themselves more superior to other Christians based on these chapters. Because it's the the theological minded, the theologically sound, the theologically conservative that look down at the charismatic and look down upon the charismatic for their looseness with Scripture. And for their overfixation with the Spirit, even, even above Christ Himself. But then the charismatic looks down on the theologically minded or conservative as someone who, who is, is cold or dead to the things of God or disinterested in the work and power of the Holy Spirit. And thus, the divisions. And what's interesting is that these divisions and these attitudes of superiority, especially regarding the gifts, the gifts are as old as the church in Corinth in the first place. Rightly does Paul say, look at at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Such a great starting place. Because these divisions, these attitudes of superiority and inferiority, these locked into your position, 
your version of interpretation of these things, sometimes based on your experience. Maybe you've experienced the abuse of some of these things, and you're at a place where you you don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole anymore. Been there, done that, right? Or maybe you do find yourself interested in and a little bit more hungry for the actual power and presence of God than maybe your, your theology would allow. You see, I love, I love that Paul is addressing this in this church. And I'll tell you that what we want here at Redeemer Church is what Paul wanted for the Corinthian church, which is simply what God wants. We want God's plan. I asked you, what would you do if, if you were God and you were making a plan for the church age? Certainly God had it all figured out and had everything in mind for the power of the Holy Spirit to properly and actively be at work among us, including in our gatherings. That's what we want, according to his word and according to his heart. Nothing more and nothing less. So I love how Paul begins his discussion and instruction about the use of spiritual gifts within the gathering by reminding us that, that every genuine believer, by the way, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is where he begins. Look again at verse 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, and I add brothers and sisters because in the Greek, that's in, it's in the, 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 the phrase where it includes both, actually, and so I always read it as brothers and sisters because it's all of us. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting because Paul connects this discussion to their previous life, their previous life in paganism, and what that looked like in their lives. And unlike mute idols who will Never speak, God has always been a speaking God, as is his spirit. And of course, we speak, and his point is that it is only by the spirit of God that someone can say that Jesus is Lord. This declaration, Jesus is Lord, which is, is the most fundamental statement about the transformation that happens in the heart and life of a Christian of someone who places their faith in Jesus, when Jesus, in a sense, looks you in the eyes like he did his disciples and says, follow me, and your heart leaps inside of you and says, I will follow. It's at that moment in the spirit that's been given to you, you now say Jesus is Lord and would never say Jesus is accursed. Now, we know that Paul is addressing a deeply divided church they're super great at divisions, aren't they? This is just like what they're pros at. They just find a place to divide with each other, and then they, they hit it, including this here. So I love that how Paul begins by immediately leveling the playing field. He says, look, anyone who says Jesus is Lord says that in the Spirit. In our next text, next time, he's actually really going to hammer this. He says 
in verse 13. We're not going to get there. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Every genuine believer, every born-again Christian, regenerated by God, has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Do you believe this? There's no Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit of God as a gift given to them and dwelling within them. And then from a transformed heart, you declare Jesus is Lord. I just love that. I love it. It's just like, okay, level playing field. Everybody's got the Spirit. And then he proceeds what I, I think are, are foundational principles that serve to inform them, right? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So he's going to lay out some principles with regard to spiritual gifts. Spiritual things is what that, that word means. And I think the first principle, and, and you could probably say all of these better, but, but the first principle, I think, is the principle of reception. And what I mean by that is the, the, the principle of, of receiving a gift, the principle of gift reception, the principle of, of what do you think the idea of a gift is anyway, right? Because the word that Paul uses here speaks of, of grace, charisma, that charismatic, charismata is a word that, that speaks of grace, but it connects both the idea of, of God's grace and God's gift, that once again places everybody on this, on this wonderful level playing field. Because what Paul is fundamentally talking about in these chapters are gifts. Grace gifts from God. Which makes each of us those who are recipients of something from God. When we think about gifts, how can we not picture the posture of standing before God with open hands. And then him in his sovereign grace, apportioning to each one of us personally exactly what he himself wants to give to us. And therefore, how could we not, not only be grateful for whatever gift our heavenly father gives to us, but how could we also not be humble? Paul's already said it in, in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? That's what I mean by the principle of, of reception, receiving a gift. God is sovereign over what he gives to us. We don't deserve or earn or strive for or manipulate or put in for a certain gift that we think is a little bit better. No, the, the spiritual gifts are, are gifts of grace from God himself. The spirit, it says, apportions to each as he wills. Listen, there's, there's something very special and personal about that. This is not academic. To Paul. This is relational. This is about you and your heavenly father and the spirit that he has promised to you who has a gift for you. 
And by the way, these grace gifts from God are are from the triune God, by the way. Did you notice that in verses 4 to 6? Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. You see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved in empowering the kinds of gifts and service and activities he ordains. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us because of the mystery of the Trinity. God is one, three in one. But again, Paul's first move in addressing a group of of essentially proud and divided Christians who are leveraging the gifts that God has given them in ways that are, are self-serving in a sense. Paul takes them right back to the beginning, reminding them that these are gifts. And, and it's grace. None of us deserve these, but God is such a generous and giving God. The second principle I see is, is the principle of the supernatural. And what I mean by this is, it connects to the common definition of spiritual gifts or grace gifts that we that we uh, that we see. For example, Sam Storms defines spiritual gifts in this way. So remember, they're gifts, but they're spiritual gifts. He says spiritual gifts are capacities or abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity in order to serve other believers to the glory of God. Or Wayne Grudem says, a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So I guess the idea here that I'm trying to highlight is that we need to make the biblical distinction between natural talents and natural gifts that God gives to all people through his common grace and then the kind of ability that God gives to someone through the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes there is an overlap between the two, but spiritual gifts are empowered by the Holy Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So again, sometimes they might overlap onto how God has wired you in the first place. If you've been a a leader in the military or in business or in whatever sphere of life, and then you get saved, and then God, by his power, gives you and, and excites and amplifies a gift of leadership for the good of the church. That's not uncommon. Or if you're a planner or if you're, you're gifted in administration, you, you certainly might receive from the Lord a, a gift that's completely in a different lane or a different direction. But you might find that the Spirit infuses power in that spot where you begin to use, again, by the Spirit's power, something that you're wired in, but we need to make the distinction that these aren't just things that the natural person does. These are spiritual. These are supernatural. The third principle we see is the principle of variety, right? And this is maybe at the core of what Paul gets at in these these chapters. We're going to talk extensively about the variety found in the the human body. That's, That's coming up. 
And we certainly see variety throughout our, in our entire text. We've seen that, that exact word three times. There are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of service. There are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all. And then look at verse 8. We get into some of the variety. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now again, all given by the Spirit, this is all spirit-born and supernatural. But what's interesting is this is the earliest list of spiritual gifts that we see from Paul's writing. And it's not the only list of spiritual gifts that we see in the New Testament. And what's interesting is that of the several lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, none are exactly the same. There's certainly overlap between the lists, but each list is Different, which I think emphasizes the point or the principle of variety. That there are just tons of ways that the Spirit is manifested through the gifts that He gives to believers. And we're going to take time to unpack the meaning of some of these gifts as we proceed through these chapters. But, but here we see first the utterance of wisdom word of wisdom. It seems to be a spirit-empowered ability either to connect God's wisdom found in God's word to life, or more particularly, if you think about the, the amount of times wisdom has appeared in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom Paul references most in context is the wisdom of the cross, as opposed to the folly that the world thinks the cross is. It is actually the very wisdom of God. It is the power of God. So maybe an utterance of wisdom connects the, the truths of the cross in a spirit-empowered word that helps people to see Christ more clearly. Then there's this utterance of knowledge or a word of knowledge. And, and this seems to be a word that is connected again to knowledge derived from God's word. It's interesting, when, when I grew up, a word of knowledge, I think, was actually a prophecy. And not to get, like, overly technical, but if you had a word of knowledge for someone, it was, that was kind of the, the somebody, like, knew something about you that there's no way they could have known that. And they had a word of knowledge, and they would, they would share that. They were reading your mail or whatever you want to call it, right? And it was powerful because there's no way. I've experienced this. But I think that's actually prophecy because prophecy is is defined as a, revela a spontaneous revelation from God about something or someone. When you think about the word knowledge in Scripture, it's mostly connected to God's Word. So I think, I think uh, like Agabus, who, who knew something about Paul and how he was going to be captured or turned over in Jerusalem, I, I would have called that for probably a lot of my life a word of knowledge. You had a word of knowledge for Paul. Actually, it says in Scripture he had a prophecy. He was, he was, it was a prophecy given to Paul, whereas the word of knowledge might be, might be a spirit-empowered way that, you, that something of God's word comes to mind and you're empowered by the spirit, able to communicate that in ways that, that build up the church. 
The gift of faith is next. And that seems to be a, a supernatural sense of faith, not, not just saving faith. But I think this is like the faith that Paul will reference in chapter 13. If I have faith to move mountains, but have not love, and he continues, and we'll get there. But I think there's a, this is a supernatural sense of faith. Some people are positive or optimistic naturally, but this seems to be supernatural faith for unique situations. Then Paul talks about gifts of healings and works of miracles, and these seem connected. And it's really interesting because both of these are in the plural. It's like it's, it's gifts of healings is how it's actually said in the text. So I think that that means that there, there must be a, a variety of, of issues and, and sicknesses, not just isolated to physical sicknesses. Maybe, maybe faith to pray for healing of, of someone mentally or emotionally, maybe that's in view. The gift to pray for healing, like we saw Jesus healed. He, he brought back to order what was disordered. And we're encouraged in Scripture to pray for one another. And there are times where the Spirit of God supernaturally meets the means of our, our prayer and heals people for the glory of God, for the common good. And, and miracles uh, you know, might refer to be connected to healings, might be connected to, to natural miracles. And then Paul talks about prophecy, and, and we're going to talk about prophecy uh, at length because Paul does, uh, especially in, in chapter 14. But again, these are the times when God either reveals to you something you couldn't know about someone or something, and you communicate. It's the time, these are the times where, where the Holy Spirit of God gives you, it just gives you an impression about something or someone. And it often is, it, it's spontaneous. It's not, it's not necessarily like you were thinking about that. I wonder if you've experienced that. Where you've been with a group of people and, and there's just this something. And it might, and you might not even know like who it's for necessarily. But maybe some, the, the Spirit puts something on your heart, reveals something to you. It's important to know that, that prophecy in the New Testament is not authoritative. It's different than Old Testament prophecy. It's not equivalent to Scripture. It is to be tested according to the New Testament, as we'll see. But prophecy is particularly used by God to build up believers as they know and hear that God knows and sees them. We're actually going to read that in the gathering, it's, it's prophecy that will strike unbelievers with the thought, surely God was among them. This happens when, when the, the Spirit is at work revealing things. Then there's the ability to distinguish between spirits. This seems to be a Spirit-empowered ability at the very least, to determine what is from God and what is not from God, various kinds of tongues and the ability to interpret tongues. Again, this is something that we're going to, to talk much more about in chapter 14 because the cage match is between prophecy and tongues, right? 
in the church then. That, that, that's really where a lot of the, the division was happening. But honestly, there's a lot, this is where a lot of the confusion happens, right? I think maybe up, up to this point, um, if you're, you're comfortable with the gifts, and a lot of these things make sense, the, the Spirit empowers all of these different functions. But then you get the tongues and you're just like, yeah, man, I don't know. Why did he have to put that in there? Now, I will tell you, it's interesting that in every list of gifts where tongues are mentioned, they're mentioned last, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. But Paul is going to, to show the, the preeminence, certainly, of intelligibility in the gathering. But the gift of tongues, that Barry's teaching a class on it right now, is a precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's going to stand in front of God, your Father, with your hands wide open for him to give you this, this gift to speak in a language that's either known or not known, addressing God with prayer and praises, either in tongues of men or tongues of angels, who, who knows? Not babbling, not gibberish, but a spirit-empowered ability to communicate to God through a language that he gives you. Who's going to turn your back on God and say, no, thank you? Too weird, too controversial, no, thank you, right? Look, these are our gifts. There's, there's a variety of gifts. It's amazing. And, and of course, when you, when you think about tongues, what we're going to find out and why he says the gift of interpretation is because if this gift is used in the gathering, it must be interpreted. But if you think about the New Testament gifts, they range between speaking and serving, leadership and hospitality, prophecy and helping people, pastoring and showing mercy, preaching to large groups of people and praying in faith with one other person. There's a variety, a vast variety of gifts. Here's the fourth principle. So we have the, the principle of, of reception, receiving a gift. We have the, the principle that this is supernatural. They're not just natural abilities. The principle of vast variety of gifts, some of them listed here. And then the fourth principle, I just don't know how to say it except the principle of everyone gets one. Right? It's the principle that, that every Christian gets a gift. And again, this is a huge thrust of Paul's instruction about the gifts, especially in chapter chapter 12 and the the uh, the example with the body. But the point is that God apportions to each one. There is no Christian. There there is no genuine follower of Jesus who has not been given a gift. In other words, any believer who says that I'm not gifted or God has not given me anything, you might at best be uninformed. Because Paul said, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. But at worst, you might be dishonoring Scripture. Which says, look in verse 4 to 6, there are variety, varieties of activities. It is the same God who empowers them all in who? In everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
And then again at the end of our text today in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to who? To each one, right? To each one individually as he will. Look, even if you are skeptical about the gifts of the Spirit or you have questions, I guarantee you if you are a born-again Christian, you have a gift given to you by the Spirit. And I would double guarantee you that God has empowered and used that gift. I would simply wonder if you knew it. Because we're not to question God and his word. This is true. He is apportioned to each one individually as he wills. To everyone is given a manifestation of the Spirit. And I guarantee you the Spirit is, is, is been, has been used through you in your life. I just wonder if you, if you knew it. I would, I would love to pause and ask you, as you think about your Christian life, as you remember back to all the, all the things you've been in, if it goes all the way back to, to youth group or college ministry or the, the variety of churches that you've been in or discipleship groups or, or Bible studies, as you think back, I wonder if you could find times where you, you know that God specifically used you in a certain way. You know that he, he used you in something that didn't just come from you. Actually, I, I wish I could open up the microphone here. I think we could spend probably the rest of the afternoon just telling stories, right? I mean, wouldn't that be great to just hear the, the, the stories? Because there's as many as there are people in this room, I think, of ways that, that even as skeptical as you might be that, to say, you know what, but there was this one time. And I just know that, that that thing had God all over it. It was dripping with God. It was a God thing. It was a God moment. Look, that shouldn't surprise you. Maybe you thought that it was maybe just a, a, a natural part of your skills or personality. But maybe you've had an impression for someone. Or maybe you sent someone a scripture. Out of the blue, God just put a scripture on your heart for a friend. And so you just, in the midst of whatever you're doing, sent it off only to find out that at that exact moment, God was at work. Maybe you've prayed for someone and, and something changed. Or maybe you've hosted an event or a meeting or administrated and planned or or had people over, and you saw God move among his people through the things that you just kind of practically set up. That there was a spirit of, of grace over your home. Maybe you've encouraged someone because of a sense of faith that God gave to you about something that they were facing. Look, this shouldn't surprise us because of the principle that, that everyone gets one. Every believer has been given a gift, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Paul con 
includes in this foundational section, not not necessarily a, a fifth principle, but the point or the purpose of it all, right? We finally find in, in how he puts this together that the point of it all is that every everyone has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for what? Do you remember? Does anybody know? For the common good, right? For the common good. That is the point or the purpose of it all. Not only do we see that, that these are gifts from God, our, our Father, the, the Spirit gives us gifts. Not only are they supernatural, not just our own natural abilities and talents. Not only is there a vast variety of gifts, and not only does, does everyone individually receive a gift, but the point and purpose of it all is the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the common good, which means that these gifts are not for ourselves. These gifts are not meant to be trophies to put on our shelves to brag about. These gifts are not meant to be used to measure ourselves against others or their gifts. These gifts were never meant to stir pride among God's people and or superiority. These gifts were meant to be used for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ, like a pond with no incoming or outgoing water becomes rancid and putrid, the gifts the Spirit empowers are meant to be used, received, input, and used, outputs, for the common good, for the building up of God's people. It's so interesting because the gifts are amazing, because they are simultaneously meant to be operationalized toward those around us. But not ultimately at our own whim. Because they're simultaneously meant to be used. That's the point of them. But they're not meant to be used however you personally think would make you feel best about how they're used or when they're used. There's a common good aspect of them. Which means that that the Spirit is also involved in in the timing and the sense and and the use. There's no such thing as the, the Spirit told me this, and so what else can I do? If it's not for the common good, what else you can do is not, right? And I'm not, I'm not just saying this. This is what Paul's going to say. Like, your meetings are crazy, guys. That's what you're going to tell them, right? Because there's a sense that of, of a kind of spiritual entitlement that comes. That, again, it's, it's just so interesting because it's ironic because they're meant to be used. But at the same time, they're constrained, by what the Spirit is doing, right? And what's best, especially for the gathered congregation. But make no mistake about it, they're meant to be used. Paul is going to address a lot of that as, as we go forward. But, but let's close. And worship team, you can 
you can come. Remember we asked at the beginning, what do you think God's plan was going to be after the death and resurrection of Jesus? And we know that his plan has everything to do with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. God with us, God in us, the supernatural power and presence of God available to us. And of course, the the specific application of this is we must not be uninformed. We're going to continue to unpack this teaching about the gifts and their use. Paul's going to insert that that wonderful chapter on love that's perfectly placed and in its context is about these things. But I wonder if we go back just half a step. And I wonder if, if regardless of how you are raised, charismatic or not, regardless of what you've seen or not seen, whether it's been well done or properly done or abused, regardless of your personality, whether you're emotional or whether you're more stoic, I wonder what your relationship with the Holy Spirit is like if you are a Christian here this morning. Let's just go back one half a step. We're going to talk a lot about gifts. But what did you think an actual relationship with God would look like when that was offered to you through the gospel? Would you say that the Holy Spirit is a daily reality for me? Through him, I I connect and commune with God the Father and God the Son. I am dependent on him and aware of my, my need for God. And I expect that that he means to empower me and be with me and to lead me throughout the day as I fellowship with him and and walk by the Spirit. And I expect him to use me as a part of the church, the gifts that he's given to me. Or or is is a lot of that in the rearview mirror for you or not present really at all? Maybe you've left some of that behind because of some things that you've seen or experienced. But I wonder if if one of the things that that the Spirit wants to do is, is to lead us all back to the heart of it all. And to see Jesus who died and rose again and conquered sin and death for us. Who said to who said to us, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send my Holy Spirit. Does your Christian life and mine embrace that promise and reality and expectation that we are people of the Spirit, that we're desperate for Him, that we need Him, that that's what it means to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Spirit. Maybe there's something that that God wants to restore there, not because of the flavor of church that we are, But between you and him, your heavenly father who sent his spirit. Maybe there's there's something he wants to do in your heart as we go through these things. To bring you back to that place of, of vital connection to God through the spirit. Who is with you and in you every day, right? So let's pray to that end. Lord, we we just offer our ourselves to you. Maybe there's someone here who, who 
was hungry for, for the spirit in the first place, to be indwelt by you in the first place, alone and hungry and desperate with no answers in this world. You've come to this place, Jesus, because you've drawn them, Lord. Pray that that would be their experience in all of us. That you would, Holy Spirit, lovingly, a work in each of us in response even to what we see here where we want to honor you and experience you apart from you we can do nothing we are hungry and thirsty for more of you God in our lives so spirit come pray that you would do a work in each of us as you will in Jesus name